You know, John, talking about um, 35 years of marriage reminded me of our, our men's retreat last weekend. We had two guys speak who um, were married 41 and 42 years, and they were sharing out of their extensive wisdom about what it means to be a dad, what it means to be a, a husband. And of, of course, John, 35. I'm just, uh, I just turned the corner on 26, and so I have a long ways to go to catch these other guys. Um, but it's interesting. One of the things that Rob said, he was one of the speakers, was you know, that he wouldn't want to go back to the beginning and start dating all over again. And uh, my wife and I, Deanna, have said the same thing. It's like, I can't imagine, like, starting all over again, getting to know somebody. Back in the day when I was 18 or 19 or 20, yeah, that was all exciting. But in retrospect, that's a horrible thing, you know, isn't it? It really is. The whole dating process, especially if it's a cold date, it's, 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 a, it's a fearful process. You're constantly worrying about the impression that you're making um, on the other person, you know, and you whether you know it or not, you're hiding all of your dirty cards like in a card game and you're showing only the ones that are good and um, looking at yourself in the mirror making sure before you go out on the date your you know, hair's in place. And actually, I did have to do that in my day. And, um, you know, you're like, do I have good breath? Do I, am I, do I stink? You know, um, conversation. You're like second-guessing your conversation. Did I say something wrong? It was just, how am I being processed? How am I being, making an impression? You know, does she like me? Does she not like me? And then there's the whole, what words do you use? And then there's awkward conversations because you don't know each other that well. Like, so where would you like to go to dinner on our first date? And the girl typically is like, you choose. So the guy thinking, I'm just going to like go high here. What do you think about Morton's Steakhouse? He's thinking, I got this one in the bag and she's going to be impressed. And then he finds out, no, actually that doesn't work for me. I'm vegan. It's <laughs> like kind of an awkward moment, right? That's just the whole dating process, man. It's just so uh, tenuous and such a fearful, insecure thing. And even after you get to know somebody, and I still don't fully understand myself, much less my spouse, but in the girlfriend-boyfriend dating relationship, it still is a very insecure time. You're constantly questioning, if she finds out this about me, is she still going to want to be with me. She finds out I snore. Is that going to be a deal breaker? Because some people say snoring is a deal breaker. Other people, not so much. <laughs> I want to say something right now, but I'm not going to. Um, There's just very, very, leaves you very feeling very insecure. Like at any moment, you could get a Dear John letter. You know, that's the old way of breaking up. Now people break up through text message. Or people have been, I've read this, people are breaking up through emojis, Right? Ending it, just the fear. That's the dating relationship. Everything changes, and everything is supposed to change. The minute that a couple stands before God and before witnesses, making solemn oaths and vows, that's what a covenant is, oaths and vows, obligation to love. Um, Till death do your part. All of a sudden now it's, it's gone from the dating, fearful, insecure stage to something that is bound by solemn oath. That's the way the Bible describes marriage. Is it is a solemn covenant. It's not, 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 not just a contract. A contract can, doesn't necessarily have to have love, but covenant, marriage covenant, it's love, it's loyalty, it's singular love. Bound by law and by witnesses. Now, I understand our culture cheapens that, that institution, but God gave it to us 
for a purpose. That is, it's, it's within the confines of covenant that a man and a woman can find protection to disclose themselves physically, emotionally, spiritually, without fear of being rejected. Outside of that, you, you open yourself up to rejection, whereas in the confines of God-given marriage, there is protection. It also is meant to secure so that when you're having a really bad day or a bad season or you hit a really low point in your marriage, uh, you're not thinking, well, I can write a Dear John letter. No, it's like you're in it all the way. My wife and I, Deanna, and I have talked over the years just like, you know, I'm not going anywhere and I never will because we are locked together. That is the concept and the wonder and the beauty of this thing called covenant. Now, we're not going to talk about marriage this morning, but I do think God gave us the covenant of marriage so that we could get a picture of what covenant is in a very tangible, real, emotional way. So, we're going to talk about, over the next seven weeks, um, eight weeks actually, the, um, the covenant, divine covenants of the Bible. Um, we're beginning with Adam this morning, Genesis 2, and then we're going to go to Noah next week, and then Abraham, and then Moses, and then David, and then Jesus, and then we're going to end with the covenant of redemption, which is where God, the Father, and the Son conspired before time ever began to covenant himself with the people. It's just an amazing ending to this series. Now, if you're asking why, why, why are we going to spend seven weeks doing this, Dan? This sounds like theological mumbo-jumbo. Um, it's not. There are a whole host of reasons. Um, let me just give you a couple. I don't know that your average Christian really understands um, how the Bible all fits together or that God himself is fundamentally covenantal. I mean, one of the distinctive aspects, if you think about Christianity, and it's, it's, it's in the Bible and it's embedded in our earliest creeds, is that we believe in the three in one. We believe in the triune God. That is three and one. Un, unos, one. Um, that God is one in essence and yet exists in, in plurality with himself. He is a unified diversity. That is, the God, Father, Son, and Spirit are united in singular love and purpose to one another. That is a covenantal idea. He is fundamentally relational, fundamentally covenantal. And to understand a little bit of that, understand, so we get to understand who God is. At the same time, like I said, the Bible, like the, the way it's architected, is an interrelation of these things called covenants, which is why when you open the Bible, the, the first two-thirds is under the cap, uh, caption Old Testament or Old Covenant. You flip to the New, and it's the New Testament, the last third of your Bible, the New Testament, or the New Covenant. So it's, even when you just open it, you're confronted by covenant, right? And there are a lot of covenants underneath the ones that we're going to look at. It affects how you view God. It affects how you view yourself. It affects how you interpret the Scripture. Do we interpret it or see it or read it covenantally? I mean, are you in a dating relationship with God? Where he can, you know, write you a Dear John letter if you have spiritual bad breath? Or are you covenanted to God? A huge, deep, wide, strong, securing truth. Those are just 
some of the reasons why it's important for us to tackle this over the course of the next eight weeks. And um, I, I hope by the time you get to the end, you will be more firmly secure in your relationship with the Lord. And I hope that you will begin to see and perceive and think about things covenantally. Um, so we're going to start with the first one this morning, which is the covenant with Adam. But before I draw your attention to that one, just a couple of comments. One with regards to the unity of these covenants we're going to look at over the next eight weeks and the diversity. At the heart of all of the covenants is a focus on the focal point of Jesus as the fulfillment. All of them move that direction. And hopefully everyone who speaks, I'm not bringing them all, all the messages, will hit that hard because if we don't, I feel we fail. They all have it as a commonality, a, a, a centering on Christ. Two, all of the divine covenants that God makes with man, all of them are initiated and established by God alone. At no point in the story of the Bible do we find man initiating a covenant with God, as if to get on his knees and offer a ring saying, hey, will you be part of my family? At no point. Every divine covenant is an immeasurably gracious move on God's part to accommodate himself as almighty, endless, infinite creator to establish a relationship with you and me created in his image. That right there is a mind-blowing thing. It is, but it is God who comes to us to establish covenant. That is true of all, 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 all the covenants. Third, at the core of the idea of covenant is not simply contract, like a legal contract. You can have a legal contract with somebody and have absolutely no affection. You know, when you signed your mortgage papers and the person on the other side signed those mortgage papers or the, the lender did, do you have any affection for your lender? No. I don't really care about my lender. This is a contract that has no heart to it. The idea of covenant, both biblically and historically, is filled with devotion and affection and love as God has shown us in the covenant of marriage. So it's more than a contract. So that's, those are the three commonalities. They're Christ-centered. They are all initiated by God, and they all imply this affection and devotion and loyalty. But there are differences as we will make our way through this journey. Some of them are unilateral. That is, God makes a promise. No conditions. At other points, there are covenants which are conditional. And there has to be a mutual agreement of saying, I will follow, I will keep this covenant. So while there is unity, there is also diversity. And you have to keep that in mind as we move forward. So with that kind of introduction to the series, there's a lot more to say, but no time. Let's focus in on the very first one we find in the Bible, God's covenant with Adam the first man, the first king, the first viceroy of earth. Um, some have called this the covenant of creation. Others have termed this the covenant of works. Um, the covenant of works, while I don't like the word works because it has some negative connotations in Christian circles, nevertheless, educationally, makes sense in terms of what I'm going to say later. So I, either one of those is fine. Covenant of creation, the covenant of works, the covenant of Adam. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read these verses, and then I'll comment on them. 
And as I read them, I want you to, to note in your head who the subject of all the action is. Because in the verses I'm about to read, God is the only actor. He is the subject of the verbs. Then the Lord God formed, first verb, formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he, God is a subject, put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up everything that, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree, uh, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So two trees. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Drop down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. All these, God is the subject. He's the actor. And it continues on. Now God speaks to the man. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him helper fit for him. Drop down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed. First surgeon, surgical procedure in the Bibles right here. A closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There's covenant in these verses. Now, some one might object, yeah, but Dan, the word covenant isn't actually there. It doesn't actually appear till chapter 6 of Genesis. True, the word covenant does not appear. But the components of a covenant appear. There are, there are two parties. You have to have more than one party to have a covenant and have a covenant with yourself. Um, there are stipulations that are given. That is, you need to do this. There's, there's a rule. And then there are sanctions. That is, what happens if you fail? Those are components of covenant. Moreover, the prophet Hosea, centuries later, looking back to his Bible, that is reading Genesis 2, he saw covenant there. So he wrote, and this is, uh, he's referring to Israel in this, this text, but he's likening it or um, equating it to Adam. He says, but like Adam, they, Israel, transgressed the covenant. Adam transgressed the covenant. So there's a covenant relationship being established in Genesis chapter 2. Now, and let me just encourage you, if this just sounds like, man, this is just heavy, can I just really encourage you to, to do your absolute best to understand what I'm trying to say because it's going to pay off huge in the end, not only in terms of your understanding, but I think in terms of your heart. So let me just focus in this kind of covenantal exchange. It's not even an exchange. God's the only one speaking. The covenant relationship with Adam. In terms of focusing on the person, the stipulations, that is what you can't do, and then also the sanctions, that is what happens if you don't. The person. I wanted you to keep track of all of the action words in there because I want you to understand from the very get-go, a God who is covenantal is massively gracious. Like, he provides everything. Adam doesn't have to do a thing at this point, right? 
He formed, God formed the man. He breathed into the man. He planted a garden, right? He put him in the garden. He caused trees to grow that are not only beautiful, but good for food. So it's full provision. The refrigerator is full and overflowing. He puts him in the garden, gives him meaningful work to do, realizes at some point that, you know, it's not good that man should be alone. And so he creates a wife out of him, right? He caused a deep sleep, took a rib, fashioned a woman, and God himself, like a father who gives away a bride, brings her to the man. Everything! And so the picture that emerges is that the God of covenant is generous and overflowing, gracious. He's not a person. He's not a character. His heart is not, listen, I'm going to give you bread, water, and beans in the desert. Fully furnished. Home with a wife who's perfect, right? Perfect. No bad hair, no bad breath, no foul moods. And she's confident because she discloses herself to to Adam without so much as a wink of embarrassment, she's buck naked. That's a pretty awesome picture. You know what I'm saying? Man, God, it's like you gave me a home, it's fully furnished, there's food everywhere, it's beautiful, and now you gave me a companion who's we talked about it this men's retreat. Who's smoking hot? This is what's better, right? That's the person. Just notice, the person who's initiating the covenant, that's his heart. That's who he is. Second, the stipulation. You read this. There's one rule. Just one. There are no Ten Commandments. There are no 613 precepts of the Mosaic Law. There are no flow charts to say, if this happens, then you need to do this. There's no bylaws. There's no, it's just sing, some, one single thing. He says, you may surely eat of every tree. That's full freedom. Go for it. Just eat of every tree. The apples and the pears and the peaches and tomatoes. And just go for it. Except one, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one exception. That's the one step. Can you imagine? Just one rule. One rule, one condition, one stipulation. That's it. With all of this generosity being poured on him, one rule. He's got to keep. That's the one stipulation in this covenant. One. Now, you and I probably, you know, we look back on Adam and go, man, you're so stupid. Yeah, but I guarantee you, you would have done exactly the same. That's the truth. That's the stipulation. Third, the sanction. So, here's this amazingly, a generous God provides a generous place, a home, and a wife, community. And then he says, just one thing. Don't, don't eat of this tree. Trust me on this. You need to obey. Just, I'm just asking you to trust me and obey. The true sign and expression of the fact that you actually trust somebody as good is that you will obey them. I think Adam's obedience was to be out of trust that God is in fact good. Sanction. If you don't, it's really, really clear. You'll surely die. Game over. You will die in every sense of the word. Death. Crystal clear. Couldn't be more clear. That's the, that's what happens. 
One rule. Death. May I suggest, I'm not going to suggest, I'm going to argue, that there is also implicit in this also a, a possible reward. And what I mean by that is there are two trees in the garden. One, knowledge of good and evil that leads to death, and the other, the tree of life, which leads to eternal life. And the sense is that Adam didn't have eternal life innate to himself, which is why it's in a tree, it's outside of him. And he doesn't, it seems, if you're reading between the lines of chapter 2 and chapter 3, he doesn't take it. And I think part of the reason for that is that he needed to earn it. As most theologians, and I am persuaded that they are right, see Adam and Eve here in what they call a probationary period, a period of testing. Will you actively trust me and obey me? And at the conclusion of this test, had he not fallen, he would have been rewarded with the tree of life, eternal life. But he had to pass the test. He had to earn it. That's why they call this, one of the reasons they call this the covenant of works. The perfect man had to go on, pass the test, and then he would be rewarded with life. Right? That's the positive side. If the negative side is death, the positive reward for obedience is life. Now that's just looking at the text of Genesis 2. Now, I want to go back, look at those three things, and I want to just kind of reflect on them as it relates more to us. We've already talked about like the person, and I've already spent enough time talking about how um, generous God is, that the God, the covenantal God of the Bible is generous. And, you know, you make your way through the other covenants, you realize when God makes a covenant promise to Israel to take them into the land, it's called the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. That's what it means it's rich. They have houses they don't need to build, vineyards they don't need to plant. There's fruit trees that are already bearing fruit. He's providing a fully furnished home out of the Mosaic Covenant. God is a gracious God. And we could go all the way through and just show how the God of covenant is gracious. So I think you got that. The second thing we learn that we take away from the single stipulation is this, is that we see that all it takes is one sin to be condemned, one act of defiance, and you're banished, and your condemnation is death. Just, just, just one. And this confronts uh, a popular sense that people carry with them that somehow if you're, the good you do in your life outweighs the bad in your life, you know, that the scale tips in favor of goodness, that somehow God is going to open the door of approval in eternity and say, hey, have, have some, some fruit from the tree of life. One single act of disobedience leads to condemnation. That's how holy God is. That to be in covenant with the Lord, where he approves of you, you are actually family with him, requires flawless living. Flawless. No negatives. There's nothing in the negative leisure. You didn't think bad about anybody. You didn't cheat anybody. You didn't bend the truth to anybody. Perfect. Flawless. That's 
stands behind. This is the first covenant, and it serves as the backdrop to the whole rest of the Bible. In order to be in covenant, I have to be flawless. Lock that into your head. That's what the Bible demands. The wages of sin is death, even if it's one. And I believe that this covenant that we just read about, covenant of works, covenant of creation, that requires absolute obedience and flawlessness is still in force. It's still in force. And at the end of time, when you get to Revelation, and it says, and I saw the dead standing before the throne, both great and small, and books were opened, and they were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. They're judged by their works. And the fact of the matter is, because none of us is sinless, this covenant can only condemn. I'm screwed, according to this covenant. So are you. All it takes is one. All it takes is one. Just for us to be in covenant relationship, it takes flawlessness. But then the reverse of that, like there's the absence of sin, but that, that just, if there's an absence of sin, that just brings one to a place of moral neutrality. What about on the positive ledger? What about acts of righteousness? And that too comes into play. That eternal life must be merited by perfect obedience. Let me break this down a little bit, okay? Um, When Adam first arrived on the scene, and we don't know what it looks like, it just says he formed him out of the, the clay, whether God sculpted him and then breathed on him and he came to life. The fact of the matter is, in his first moments, he was a complete noob. Right? Like, there were, if, if you're thinking military, there's no, no badges of honor, there were no stripes, and there are no hash marks. Nothing. It's just an empty shirt. Or maybe if you're, you know, a Boy Scout or Cub Scout or a, remember Weeblos? Isn't that the funniest word you ever heard? Weeblo. I was a Weeblos. It's about as funny as snorkel, the word snorkel. Or, anyway, I digress. Where, you know, you start off, you just have a shirt. There's nothing. And then, then you pass this test, and you, you get a patch, and you swim this lake, and you get this patch, and I don't remember what they all are. You tie a knot, and you get this match, and you help somebody, you get this patch, and pretty soon you've got all these patches. It's merit badges. The idea being that Adam needed to go through and have a full set of merit badges. It didn't happen at the beginning. That took time. That would have been the test, the probationary period. Or grades. You know, you can't say you've actually graduated college until you've been through all the classes. And in this particular case, it's, it's classes without even the sliver of failure, which means you had A pluses all the way through every class. You got to the end, you said, here's my report card. It's absolutely perfect. I have passed all the tests. Yes, you were given a BS or a BA, right? Passed the test. The idea being not only the absence of negative that is flawless, but the presence of the positive, which Adam never got. Of course, you know the the story from this point. You know, it goes downhill through a very subversive whisper. The wife is derailed through the serpent, and the husband is derailed through the wife, and he, of course, actively and willingly chooses, like 
to sin and break covenant. And when he broke covenant, he just didn't break covenant for him. He is our, what they call, living head. He is our federal representative. And when he fell, unlike us now, when he fell, he broke the law for all of us. That's why Paul says, in Adam, all die. Not only are we lawbreakers by reason of the fact that he's the head of our race, but then we were infected with it so that none of us can actually keep it anyway, right? Now, God could have ended the story at Genesis 3, had every right to execute. It would have been the shortest story ever, and the Bible would have been way smaller if it ended in Genesis 3 and God just wiped them out. But what God wasn't going to do is let the devil win. And more importantly, he had a deeper love and a deeper plan to show his generosity in ways that we would never fully understand had those things not happened. So you have this covenant of works. A gracious God provides everything for Adam. One stipulation to keep one thing. And then if you do it, you'll be rewarded with eternal life. You'll have accrued merit to earn it. And if you fail, everything dies. And that, of course, is the rest of the the Bible. It talks about how that happens. But then in chapter 3, in the midst of all of the brokenness and the blaming and the shame and the guilt and the sin, there is this astounding gospel proclamation that's made, ironically enough, not to Adam and Eve, but made to the serpent, the devil himself. Many have called this the, the, like the proto-gospel. I don't want to leave us in the dark of the covenant of works like you're just hosed people, so we've got to end on a positive note. Chapter 3, verse 15, is worthy of careful reading. In the midst of failure, in the midst of broken covenant, in the midst of condemnation of death, God looks at the devil and he says, I will put enmity between you, that is the devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Basically, you can almost picture Almighty Yahweh looking at the devil saying, I'm going to put, there's going to be a war. This isn't the end of the story. There's going to be a war between the offspring of the woman, that is her seed, her genealogical line, and you, and those who are loyal to you. This isn't the end of the story. Then the last part of verse 15 is so explicit because the Lord says, he That is a second, excuse me, third person singular masculine pronoun. Not a they, not a she, says he. Like there's there's one seed coming. There's one offspring in particular coming. It is a third person singular masculine person, a human. And he, third person masculine singular, will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. You strike a person with a hammer in the, in, on their ankle, yeah, they might walk funny, but they live. Strike a person in their knee, they might walk funny, but they live. Strike a person in their shoulder, 
They may not be able to raise their fork to their mouth, but they live. The idea being the he who is coming is going to strike you in the head, and that is a mortal, fatal, destructive wound. In other words, God's saying, you know what? This line that you just seduced and and broke covenant, one's coming, and he is going to destroy you. And you know what? This is part of how the whole Bible fits together. Like, really, the rest of the Old Testament, and Matthew and Luke pick up on this in particular, traces out the genealogical line all the way from this first promise in Eden until the seed arrives in Bethlehem. You ever wonder why there's really boring genealogy here in there? And Seth begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. And you're like, this is the most boring reading ever. Can't we have some fight scenes? You know, romance or something. It's like, no. It's tracing this right down to the person. Right? Christ. And you think about when he arrives, he is the fullness and the reversal of these first three things. Will we ever see a richer display of mercy and grace and love and sacrifice as you do in the God-made flesh? who pours himself out, not for perfect people, but for sinful people. What was in the garden by way of furniture and fruit trees is nothing compared to the life poured out of his own precious son. Like he empties his pockets for us. This is what Tim Keller would call the prodigal God. Lavish! Number two, Adam had to keep one rule, just one rule. I just, I, I... thirst for just one rule to keep. Jesus had to keep all of them. Every single one of them. He, Jesus, like Adam, was assaulted by the devil. Unlike Adam, Jesus wasn't in a a flourishing garden with food and a wife around. He was in a desert after starving for 40 days, and he still didn't falter. It's amazing. That even when he was the target and the victim of slander and he was the victim of horrific human injustice, never once do you find him giving in to rage or vengeance. But even in his final words, as he makes his way to the cross, every single one is one of kindness and love. He has unwaveringly lived out every single command of God, both in terms of his attitudes, his motivations, his heart, his actions. He's the only one with a neg- no negative ledger. None whatsoever. The only one who didn't deserve death because he never disobeyed, ever. That's looking at the cross through this covenant of, 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 of Adam. Perfect obedience, which it demands. The only one where the first Adam blew it, a new and powerful, victorious Adam succeeded. Never once. But then there's the positive side of the leisure. Not only was there an absence of negative sins, that he was perfectly flawless, but he went on to accrue to earn, to work 
for a righteousness of his own. He earned all the patches. He had all the badges, all the ribbons, all the stripes, all the hash marks. He had everything. Everything. Perfect righteousness. The the leisure full. Right? That's in order to have eternal life according to the covenant of Adam or the covenant of works, he had to earn it. Only then would he be given eternal life. And seeing those two parts of this, the absence of the negative and the presence of all the positive, brings the life and death of Jesus into perfect, crystal clear vision. Because he came to give his life, perfect as it was, to satisfy the condemnation of Adam's failure. He didn't have to, but he satisfied it. He satisfied that covenant sanction in our place. But the positive is also true. Like, why did he have to be born a baby and then at the 33 years of age or close there to give his life? Why why couldn't he just like Star Trek beam him down on Good Friday? He can die and then rise from the dead and you can beam him back up. Hey, redemption's done. That's where we make a major mistake of thinking that Jesus just came to die for sin. He did. That's just half. That's just getting rid of the negative leisure. He also came because he had to pass the test. He had to face the devil in the face and say, no. He had to face his best friend and say, get behind me, Satan. I'm not going to listen to you. He had to pass the test, earn the merit badges so that he could confer upon us his righteousness, his accrual. His merit badges become ours as we identify with him, our second Adam, by faith. So that we can say, church, confidently, I think, we are saved by works. We are approved on the basis of works. We are fully embraced into the covenant of God. By works. Pastor Dan sounds like a heretic today. We are accepted on the basis of works. They're just not ours. And you know how you can't, you can't really plumb the depths of what this means. You, you just can't. Because like you, I'm a person who struggles. I understand when my motivations are compromised. I understand when I have a selfish moment with my wife and when I'm not listening. I understand that in and of myself, I am not worthy to be covenanted to God. But I do know and could be confident because of what Christ has done. I am now worthy by nature of his works and his sacrifice to be fully and completely secure in my relationship with him. So when the devil comes to you and tempts you and makes you feel like, well, I just, man, I just, I'm still struggling. I just can't believe that he loves me. It's like, you need to come back here, right? He took away the negative and he advanced you the positive 
And it's on the basis of Christ and Christ alone that we know we are his and he is ours, period. That's why you have to keep coming back to this. You see how this, this covenant with Adam really stands as the backdrop between how you can't really fully understand the cross without it. My prayer for us is that, again, we will begin to see things and interpret things and think covenantally, feel covenantally, and, and that God would just let it saturate our, our hearts and lives and experience and church family. I think it's uh, crucially important. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this, these teachings um, would truly just grip us from the inside out and that we would see um, not a God who is miserly or who is stingy, but a God who blesses us with uh, immeasurable abundance, ultimately through your own son. You have promised us a new creation, once again, flourishing with life and flourishing with, with um, praise and, and wonder and community with you at the very center of it. So, Lord, I pray for this series that you would just energize those who are speaking to just bring it home. In Christ's name.